Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you have your Bibles with me this morning, I want to ask you to take God's Word and open it with me to Revelations chapter 2 for this morning's message. You take God's Word and open it to Revelation chapter 2 for this morning's message and for our time together here today. If you've been here with us recently, you know that we've been going through a series of sermons through the seven churches of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, there were seven literal churches in Asia Minor there in the first century that Jesus was giving a direct word to. The title of our sermon series is, Can You Hear Me Now? And no, that is not a cell phone commercial, okay? We're not trying to copy uh, the cell phone brand, but we're asking that question because largely that's what Jesus was asking the churches. The churches were living in a day where frankly there were many distractions, there were many temptations, there were many pressures and weights that they were under in that moment. And so to every single church, Jesus gives a direct word at times of conviction, at times a word of comfort, at times a word of counsel and instruction. And at the end, he ends the letter with these words. So he who has ears to hear Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, he delivered the message, he made sure it was clear, and then he asked the question, but are you really listening? Are you really getting it? Just yesterday afternoon, I was sitting in the living room with my four children, and and there was a lot going on. I was smoking some barbecue meat on the back porch, and I was watching a basketball game, and I was thinking through how to respond to an email that I'd received earlier in the day. And then my daughter looked at me, and she said, Dad, I have a question. And I said, okay. And she asked me the question, and then she just looked at me, and I looked at her, and she said, were you listening to me? And I said, yes, sweetie, I was listening to you, but I have no idea what you just said. What I was admitting in that moment was my mind was full, I was distracted, and I didn't really hear what she was saying. And what Jesus is looking at us in the midst of all the distractions of the world today, and he's asking, can you hear me now? We come to the third letter, the third church in a city of Asia Minor known as Pergamum, or some would translate it as Pergamus. Today, we look at Jesus' letter to the church at Pergamum, and I wanna preach to you on the subject, the compromising church. The compromising church. There are times in life where compromise might be a good thing. Perhaps when trying to barter with someone over a price, uh, over something that you're trying to purchase, perhaps compromise can be a good thing to come to a, a better price to save a little money along the way. Perhaps when you're working together with others on secondary, unimportant matters, it's good to have some compromise, some give and some take along the way. My guess is today, if you go out to lunch after the service, not everybody in your vehicle or your group is gonna agree on the same place, so it's probably good to have a little compromise along the way. There are some areas in which compromise is not a bad thing, but I wanna remind us this morning that when it comes to our convictions, when it comes to our commitment to the word of God, when it comes to matters of character, compromise is not something that a believer should entertain. Many today minimize the seriousness of compromise because they often seem like they're minor issues at the time. But if you and I allow minor compromises in our life, it will only be a matter of time before we have a major problem at hand. Let me illustrate that for just a moment. In March of 2020, when the pandemic began and all the shutdowns began, as you know, there was a lot going on in the world. In fact, we talked amongst our pastoral staff, it seemed like every single day we were overwhelmed with pieces of information and trying to navigate all these things. At that same time in my life, my wife came to me one day with a personal concern. There was something in our life that was an issue in our house, and that was simply this. She said, she said honey, she said, I, I think you need to look at our shower door. Something I think is wrong with our shower door. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I noticed this morning that there was some water on the floor just outside of the shower door. Well, I said, did you clean it up? She said, no, I wanted you to see it. So I went back to the bathroom and I looked at it and I quickly concluded that it must have been my fault. Maybe I didn't seal the, close the door correctly or maybe I didn't dry off adequately. And so I simply cleaned it up and I went about my merry way. 
Sure enough, six to eight weeks passed and Heather came to me again and she said, sweetheart, I think you need to look at our shower door. And I said, all right, I'll do it. So I went and looked at it. And sure enough, I saw an area where I thought, well, maybe there's a seal that's bad. There's a seal that's not, you know, it's kind of eroded a little bit. Maybe I need to reseal this thing. So I went to Home Depot. I purchased what I thought I needed. I fixed the seal. Everything is good to go. Until about three and a half months later. By the time 2020 is coming to an end, she comes to me again. Matthew, I'm telling you, I think something's wrong with the door. And so I tell her I'll get to it. But frankly, once again, I got busy and distracted. Yes, that happens in my life sometimes. And so finally, I got back to the shower door and I began to look at it and began to realize, you know what? I don't know if it's so much a seal issue. I think the door is out of alignment. But there's a problem with that. I had no idea how to fix it. So you would think that genius would call the experts to come fix the thing but genius was just overwhelmed and distracted and months went by before anything ever happened. Till finally, one day I came home, I noticed there was a towel outside of that shower. I was content to let that towel be there for a few days. That'll bless your marriage, folks, I'm just telling you. And then Heather called me while I was in the office one day doing serious business for the Lord to let me know that there was now a hole in the wall. There's not a hole because she got upset and kicked the thing, okay? That, don't put that to bed for a moment. There was a hole there now because one drip at a time, one drop of water at a time, what was happening that I didn't realize is this. It was literally eroding the drywall. And to this day, if you go to my house and look in our shower, I'm telling you what's behind the curtain. If you look at the bottom left of that shower, there's now a hole big enough to put a baseball through. So pastor, what are you saying? What I'm saying is I need help, folks. Please pray for me, okay? <laughs> no, what I'm saying is it happened one drop at a time, one distraction at a time, one I'll get to it later at a time, and today there's a major issue that has to be addressed. The reality is when it comes to compromise in the life of a believer, in the life of a church, it is an issue that we must be aware of. It's an issue that we must address immediately. It's an issue that we must hear the word of Jesus in and deal with it. The compromising church we see of the church at Pergamum, I wanna ask you if you're physically able to stand to your feet, would you do so as we read Revelation chapter two, verses 12 through 17. The Bible says this, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, listen to this statement. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning and this time that we have together today. Open our hearts, open our eyes, open our minds to see where there might be compromise in our lives or even in this congregation. And I pray as you expose it that we would confess it, turn from it, and experience renewed fellowship with you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. The Compromising Church. The city of Pergamum was one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. It was nicknamed the greatest city in Asia Minor. In fact, for over 250 years, it was the capital of the Roman Empire. Pergamum was the place that all the intellects of the day would go. All the scholars, it was a place known for its education. In fact, we know today that there was a library in Pergamum that, that, that possessed over 200,000 handwritten books. The only library in the ancient world that even compared to that was the library in the ancient city of Alexandria. 
Pergamum boasted of wealth, beauty, intellect, education, and yes, even religion. And there in the midst of this city, there was a church shining bright for Jesus, but there were some major concerns that Jesus saw in that church. And we see that as we see this story of the compromising church. Four things I want us to see from the text this morning. The first is this. I want you to be reminded of the recognition of Jesus the recognition of Jesus. And every single one of these letters, Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, looks at them and he says, I know. I know everything about you. There are times that we might put on a, a facade, we might put on a mask, we might live our life in such a way that Jesus doesn't really know what's going on. But I wanna remind us, whether we're in public or in private, Jesus knows every single thing about us. Here in the context of this church of Pergamum, Jesus knew several things about them. There were things that he commended about them, things that he observed, and we see three of those things. First off, he knew their culture. Sometimes we look at Jesus as if Jesus is in heaven from a distance, unaware or unconcerned of the things that we're going through in life. But in this context, Jesus looks at them and he says, I know where you live. Now, that sounds like a funny statement, but he's not just saying, I know the city in which you live. He's saying, I know the culture in which you live. I know what's going on around you in the world. I know the messages that you're hearing. I know the pressures that you're feeling. I know the temptations that you're facing. I know the culture in which you live. In fact, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, or verse 13, he says, literally, I know where you dwell, listen to the statement, where Satan's throne is. What an interesting statement. Pergamum, above everything else of that day, was the religious epicenter of the world. Any religion could find a home and a place of welcome there in the city of Pergamum. In Pergamum, for example, they had a huge altar of Zeus that was built, a stone rising 40 feet into the air. There in the same city of Pergamum, they had an entire temple dedicated, see if I can say this name correctly, to Asculapius, who was the god of healing. In fact, that old ancient symbol of a serpent entwined around a staff is still often used as the medical symbol even in our day today. But above everything else, with all these temples and all these idols and all these so-called gods, the primary religion in Pergamum was emperor worship. They demanded, just like we saw in Smyrna last week, that everybody worship Caesar as Lord. In other words, the mentality was this. You can pray at any altar you want to pray to. You can bow to any idol you want to. You can offer sacrifices wherever you want to. But above all these other gods, you must acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. It shouldn't then surprise us that Jesus would say, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Maybe that's surprising to you to hear that Satan has a throne. Maybe it's surprising to think that Satan would even have a throne on earth. But did you know from the very beginning, Satan has sought to establish his own throne? God said of Satan in Isaiah chapter 14 that he initially wanted to establish his throne in heaven, even above God. Listen to what the Bible says. Isaiah said of Satan, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Listen to this. I will make myself, this is what Satan said, like the most high. Nevertheless, Isaiah says, you will be thrust down to Sheol. Jesus himself spoke of Lucifer or Satan in these simple words in Luke chapter 10. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The Bible tells us that Satan was one of the angels of heaven. He was beautiful. He desired to be worshiped. He desired to be praised. He desired to have a throne even above God, but God did not stand for it. In his judgment, he cast Satan and a third of all the angels out of heaven. And Jesus said, it happened so fast, I saw it like lightning falling from heaven. It should not surprise us then to find that even still on this earth today, Satan is trying to do all that he can to get a foothold, to establish a stronghold, to wreak division, destruction, and death of all sorts upon God's creation. And that time Jesus speaks and he says this, people of Pergamum, I know where you dwell and I know this is where Satan's throne is. 
In other words, he's looking at them and he's saying, I understand the obstacles that you face and I understand the oppression that you are feeling as you try to live for me. He commended them in that context. Secondly, he recognized their commitment. He recognized their commitment. He says in verse 13, and you hold fast to my name. What that means is they were clinging to the name of Jesus. Even in the midst of a culture that said, hey, you can worship any God you want to as long as you bow to Caesar as God. Even in the midst of a culture that said, hey, you know what, we're so educated, we're so smart, and this is the truth, and this is the way it's supposed to be. Even in the midst of a culture that was rejecting the truth of God, they were clinging fast to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were committed. Perhaps they remembered the words of Jesus who loud and clear had spoken those words of instruction to remind them of the importance of never being ashamed of him and never denying him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, therefore everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. Even in the midst of a godless culture, so to speak, these believers were faithfully confessing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the third thing Jesus recognized about them is this, and I think it's powerful. He recognized their courage. He recognized their courage. Notice what the Bible says. You hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Who was Antipas? Well, you can go back and study a little church history and find that Antipas was the bishop of Pergamum. He was the pastor, if you will, of the church. There's some debate amongst the scholars whether it happened in AD 64 or AD 92, but here's what we know. Because Antipas refused to worship Caesar as Lord, because Antipas refused to deny that Jesus Christ alone is Lord and Savior, Antipas was martyred for his faith. In fact, history tells us that when he refused to deny Christ as Lord only, history tells us that they took him and they burned him and they did not just burn him to death, but they did so on a pagan altar as a means of showing how low they thought of the Lord that he claimed to serve. That was Antipas. And even though their pastor had been martyred for his faith, Jesus said to them, and yet you did not deny the faith even when your pastor was killed. You know, that sobering statement causes me to question in our own lives today. We often think, oh, that, that wouldn't happen here in America. That wouldn't happen here in 2022. But let me just ask you for a moment. Could, could you consider for just a moment some rebel group comes into this place today, takes me out back and martyrs me for proclaiming the name of Christ? Let me ask you a question. Would you still stand firm? Would you still come back next Sunday to worship? Would you still open your God's word and read it from the city square? Would you still come together and pray? What I want you to see about this church at Pergamum is this. They were worshiping Jesus for who Jesus is. It didn't matter if the pastor was present or not. It didn't matter if the pastor was martyred or not. Their devotion was to the Lord Jesus Christ, not merely to some other man. And Jesus recognized them. He commended them for all these things that even in the midst of a godless culture, they looked to Jesus, they, hung, they clung tight to his name and they were faithful to declare the truth of who Jesus is. Their motto seems to be, if God be for me, who can be against me? I love that. But the second thing I want you to see this morning though is very sobering and that is this. We see the rebuke of Jesus. Now, I imagine today that no one likes to be rebuked, right? No one likes to be corrected or confronted. No one likes to hear hard truths. But there are times we need those difficult truths. Sometimes in our life, we have a tendency to isolate from others because we don't want to let them but so close to us. We don't want anyone to know what's really going on in our heart and mind. We don't want anyone to know about the issues that are, so to speak, in the closets of our life. We don't want to let anyone into the shadows because we want to protect what we are doing or what we're going, what's going on in our lives. 
But there are times we need those words of rebuke. There are times when we're going the wrong direction. We need to be challenged. We need to let people in because they see those blind spots that the enemy often brings into our life. In the midst of this church that was courageously standing, Jesus brought next a word of rebuke. And I will just tell you bluntly, it is sobering. And in this sobering rebuke, there's a powerful word of warning for us today. Verse 14 and 15. Despite their courageous stand against persecution, the believers in Pergamon were not innocent or perfect before the Lord. They were experiencing Satan's attempts to destroy them in a very unique way. We see it in verse 14 and 15. It doesn't sound all that bad, but Jesus saw it differently. Jesus says, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. You also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, the rebuke of Jesus. Please understand this morning. We must remember that there are times that Satan seeks to destroy us like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But there are also times that Satan seeks to destroy us like a subtle serpent seeking someone to deceive. Revelation chapter 12 describes Satan in this way. He is the serpent of old who deceives the whole world. That means just because you've Trust in Jesus just because you live for him, just because you're devoted to him, doesn't mean that you are immune or that you get a pass from the ways in which Satan will try to deceive us. At the church of Pergamum, there were two primary things that we see. And frankly, if we look close in our own lives, we can see them even today. The first is, what we'll simply say is this, it is the temptation or the deception of wrong beliefs. Wrong beliefs. Satan knows if he can get a foothold in our life and get us to believing the wrong things, it will have another effect in our life. And we see the wrong beliefs here at the church of Pergamum in two ways. First, in the church, maybe still without a pastor, we don't know how long it's been, they had begun to accept teaching, false teaching from two specific groups. There was first the Nicolaitans, and secondly, there was the teaching of what Jesus simply said is the teaching of Balaam. The teaching of the Nicolaitans is a little bit confusing um, because we don't know as much about it today as we do the other, but the, the word Nicolaitans literally means to conquer the people. Most scholars believe, for example, there was a group of people within the church, especially in this educated society, who claimed to have some new word from God, some new piece of information, some new understanding of science, and as a result of these new things they were discovering, they were beginning to lead people away from the truth of the gospel. Surely in our day we can relate. In a day where today we are told, well, science says this, Many times, oh, well, science must be right and God's word just must be out of date and wrong. In a day-to-day where we're told, well, well, the, well, the government says this and everybody knows the government's always right. Well, well, some guy on Facebook said this, surely they must be right. The reality is we live in a culture today in which many people claim to have some new piece of information, some new understanding, some new hypothesis that has been proven, and yet the reality is we must understand if those things are turning us away from Jesus and away from the authority of God's word, it is not of God. God said this through John in 2 John verse seven through nine. He says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. So watch yourselves that you do not lose what we've accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Listen to this. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have who? God. What a sobering statement. But then we come to a second teaching they were accepting, and that is the teaching of Balaam. I want to encourage you this week to go back to the Old Testament, find the book of Numbers, and read Numbers chapter 22 through 25, because we know exactly today what the doctrine of Balaam was. For some background, it needs to be reminded of us today, or need to be encouraged of us today, to recognize in the New Testament that God describes his relationship with the church 
his relationship with those who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior as that of a marital relationship. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses two through three, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. In other words, the apostle Paul says, listen, when you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're brought into relationship with God. Jesus is the groom and we are the bride. It's like a marital relationship. And so what God desires is this. He desires that we will be devoted in a pure devotion, that we will be faithful, that we'll not be defiled, that we'll not be distracted, that we'll not be uh, given to infidelity and other things, that we'll be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. What God is looking at here at the church at Pergamum is this. Spiritually speaking, God's people by accepting this false teaching was becoming unfaithful to him. They weren't faithful in their devotion to God. They weren't faithful in their devotion to him. They weren't pure in that. They were beginning to be distracted and defiled by the teaching of Balaam. Numbers chapter 22 through 25, let me see if I can simplify this as best I can. It's a little complex, but let me explain as best I can. Numbers chapter 22, the children of God, the Israelites, are making their way towards the promised land. And as they make their way to the promised land, they come to the outskirts of a city known as Moab. Moab had a king by the name of Balak. Everybody say Balak. Balak knew that the people of God were experiencing God's favor and God's blessing, which meant he was soon to be defeated. So operating in the wisdom of the world, he began to realize, I've got to find some way to defeat these people. So Balak, in the wisdom of the world, found a prophet of God by the name of Balaam. Can you say Balaam? And Balak offered Balaam a large sum of money. And here's basically what he said. I'm going to summarize four chapters as simply as I can. Over the process of time, he's offering Balaam money. And here's what he's saying. Balaam, will you please come and prophesy a curse over these people? Balaam, will you come and prophesy a curse over these people so that we can destroy them and not be defeated? Balaam agrees to do so because Balaam is a little greedy and money hungry. But God warns Balaam, only say what I tell you to say. Four times Balaam has them build an altar. He offers sacrifices to God. He asks God for direction. And four times God says, nope, these are my people. These are my children. I have promised in this land and I'm gonna bless them. And Balak, the king, is furious. Balak is absolutely furious because Balaam will not change the message from God. But then Balaam gets a little tricky, a little manipulative. Balaam knows he cannot say anything contrary to what God has spoken. Balaam also knows he has accepted money from a foreign king that frankly he wants to keep. So here's what Balaam does. Balaam says, you know what, Balak? I, I can't curse them. God won't let me do that. And you can't destroy them. God's already promised to bless them. But you can get them to defile themselves. You can't take away God's promises and I can't change what God has said and what God has said is final and God's word is true, but you can tempt them. You can put a stumbling block before them and you can get them to defile themselves. In other words, the personal compromise of the prophet of God led to a public corporate compromise of the people of God. In fact, here's what he said. I'll tell you what, Balak, you can't curse him. You can't change what God's doing, but here's what you can do. Get the most beautiful women from Moab and let them go into the camp of Israel. Let them be friends with them. And then as they build relationships and have friendships, then they can invite them to feast where at these feasts, they will be bowing to their own pagan gods. And if they get into that context of relationship, they begin to worship these pagan gods. It's only gonna be a matter of time before these men take these women to be their 
wives. So, so as one writer said it, maybe the best way to say that is this. At the teaching of Balaam, soon the men were eating at the tables of false gods, sleeping in the beds of pagan women, and bowing themselves down to worthless idols. But the children of Israel thought it was okay because after all, they still believed in the true living God of heaven. In other words, maybe another way to say that is this. The doctrine of Balaam is the teaching that separates what we profess from what we practice, thus leading people to think that they are okay because of the head knowledge that they possess. But I remind us loud and clear this morning, when it comes to our beliefs, our focus must be this. What does the word of God say? Not what do I feel, not what do I think, not what is the teaching that gives me the warm and fuzzies and just excites me. No, no, no. What does the word of God say? Paul warned the church about the latter days and here's what he said. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Please understand, even though the world has changed so much over the past 2,000 years, when it comes to this simple component, even still today, the world says to us, compromise. The world says to us, you must tolerate. The world says to us, you must change. But the word of God has never changed. God himself hasn't changed. Even, even as I'm saying this to you today, all week long, my mind has been thinking of a specific couple who were recently attending here and they came in the process of the membership process of the church and we had a meal together and they asked me a question after that meal. I said, hey, we wanna ask you a question about this specific doctrine of the church. And I said, okay, great. And so they asked me the question and I said, well, that's a really good question. Let's take our Bible. Let's talk about that for a minute. Because the truth is the basis for that question in their hearts and minds was not based upon what God has said. They were looking for us to change our stance to what they felt. Anytime we are basing our beliefs upon society's cultural acceptance and norms, what is popular, and if it's contrary to the word of God, then we're in a bad place. We must get back to what does the word of God say? Here's the question, do you know what it says? Are your beliefs based upon the authority of God's word or just the culture in which you live? I want to tell you, if your beliefs are based on the culture in which you live, when you stand before God in judgment, it will not stand. If your beliefs are based upon what made you feel good, it will not stand. The question is, what does the word of God say? But secondly, there's a word of rebuke, and that rebuke is in regards to wrong behaviors. Wrong beliefs always lead to wrong behaviors. False doctrine always leads to false deeds. Let me illustrate that in just a practical way. When I was 15 years old, learning to drive and loving to drive, please, teenagers, do not go practice what I'm about to say. There were a group of us in our church, teenagers, as soon as the church service would end, we would go to every widow, every single mother, every single lady, and we would say, hey, we would love to serve you. Can we pull up your car into the drive-thru area? We had a drive-thru area at the church, like a covered porch. Can we pull it up? The truth of the matter is, yes, we wanted to bless them and serve them, but we were doing that because we enjoyed driving in the parking lot. It was a very exciting time in our life, okay? 15 years old. And I remember especially when it would rain, we would, we would ask every lady we could because we're learning to drive. And so we would offer to serve them by pulling up their vehicle. And so I remember one day our youth pastor seeing this and saying, you know, this probably is not a wise idea for kids who do not have driver's licenses yet to all be driving in the parking lot at all, much less at the same time. <laughs> and so the dozen or so of us who were guilty of this action, he pulled us aside and said, listen guys, I love you. I love your heart to serve. I believe your motors are probably right, but this can't happen anymore. It's not good for you. Somebody's gonna get hurt. It's not gonna be a good thing. It could cause other division and issues in the church. No more. And so we were like, yes, sir. We all agreed we weren't gonna do it again. A few months passed. One of the guys suddenly started doing this again. 
but he didn't tell anybody. So we didn't really realize what was going on. And then one day it started raining. And so he went to one of the ladies in the church and said, older lady in the church, hey, I'd love to pull up your vehicle for you so you don't get wet. And his heart and his motives were probably right. But the truth of the matter is, he didn't believe the youth pastor's words. He thought it was no big deal. The problem is that day when he was driving in the church parking lot, he started driving a little faster than he should. And even in that parking lot, when he saw someone walk out in front of him, he slammed on brakes, he hydroplaned. The saving grace of God is he did not hit a person, but he did hit two parked cars in the church parking lot. Can I just tell you today, that guy became very famous in the church. Besides the embarrassment of it all, the fact of the matter is, is that it cost him greatly because one of the cars that he hit was a 65 Mustang, hallelujah. That'll bless you, right? His belief that it was not that big of a deal led him to wrong behavior and a very costly experience. The fact of the matter is, God looks at this church that's having all these wrong beliefs and he says, now listen, it's leading you to wrong behaviors in three ways. I'm gonna say them quickly and Lord willing, we'll unpack them more a little next week. It led them to idolatry. It led them to immorality. And it led them to indifference. Idolatry. He looked at them and said, now listen, remember Balaam's teaching? It led the people of God literally to having feasts and to bowing down to false, worthless, lifeless gods. John Phillips explains it this way. The doctrine of Balaam in its broadest sense is to bring some object between the soul and God. Listen, it strives to encourage us to set up some cherished thing, some idolized person, some sacred practice or secret ambition that comes between us and God so that God is robbed of both worship and service. False doctrine ultimately leads us even to that place of idolatry where in our own lives there is someone or something that takes the place of our first love in Jesus Christ. Here's the question. Is there anything today in your life that is keeping you from being fully devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there anything in your life today that is more important than your relationship with the Lord? Is there anything in your life that's taking more time, attention, energy, and focus than does your focus on living for the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there anything you're valuing over him? If so, you need to consider, is there idolatry in my life? Secondly, it leads to immorality. Those who are unfaithful to Christ in thought are likely soon to follow after with their actions. In Balaam's day, it was predictable. If you make yourself a friend with the world, make yourself a friend with the ways of the world, it's only gonna be a matter of time before you're doing things that are completely a sin against God. We'll talk about that in much more detail next Sunday. But finally, it led them to indifference. Here at the church of Pergamum, false teaching was being taught over here. False teaching was being taught over here. And the church largely said, mm, it's not that big a deal. God understands, we're trying to do our best. We don't need to speak up against this. They became spiritually indifferent and apathetic, refusing to address the issues at hand. And Jesus came and rebuked them. Third thing I want you to see this morning, and I've got to move quickly, is this. I want you to see the requirement of Jesus. What do you do in your life if you know there are areas in which you have begun to compromise? Well, what do you do if you've been taking God's word lightly? You don't even know what your convictions are anymore because frankly, it's been so long since you've been in God's word, you don't even know what it says on different aspects of life. What do you do if you find that there's idols in your heart and life, there's things that you're loving before the Lord? What do you do if you find in your life that you're, you're living your, your thought life and even your actions have become immoral? What do you do if you find yourself spiritually apathetic? Here's what you do. Jesus says aloud and clear, verse 16. One word, therefore... What's the word? Repent. 
Now, please understand this word repentance is a word of invitation. Jesus has given the instruction. He's given the action that he's called them to. But he said, listen, I'm inviting you right now. Now is the time to repent. The word literally means you've been going one direction. You've been going your path. You've been living in sin. You've been living selfishly. Maybe you've been spiritually apathetic. And Jesus says, listen, now's the time to stop. Change your mind, turn from your course, turn away from your sin and turn to me, live for me, love me, be devoted to me. I remind us in 1 John chapter 1, verse nine, that word of promise is written to Christians when Jesus speaks through John and he says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from what's the next word? All unrighteousness. Doesn't matter what your sin has been. Doesn't matter where you've been or what you've been doing. God can forgive and he can cleanse and he can set you free from all unrighteousness, but we must repent. Repentance is not found in trying to do better. Repentance is found in confessing our sins to Christ, turning from them and turning forward to walk and live for him. The fact of the matter is when we fall short and we mess up, when we stumble along the way, Satan does everything that he can to bring shame and to bring guilt and to paralyze us in that place. But the Bible says in Proverbs 24, verse 16, a righteous man falls seven times and he rises again. So what God is saying is, listen, turn from your sin and turn back to the Lord. Get back up, keep living. That requirement also gives us a moment of urgency because Jesus says loud and clear in verse 16, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. That statement, I am coming quickly, is not about the rapture of the church. What Jesus is saying is this, repent now or I am coming to bring judgment quickly. How will he do it? By the sword of his mouth. It's interesting to me that in Hebrews chapter four, we're reminded that the word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's interesting to me that that two-edged sword of the word of God is also described by Jesus in Revelations 2, at the beginning of our text when he says, I am the one who holds the two-edged sword. And that day, a Roman soldier would have a two-edged sword called a gladius. It was about two feet in length. In other words, that two-edged sword that was sharp and so destructive was a sword that was used for personal hand-to-hand combat. Jesus looks at the church and he says, repent, or I'm coming quickly with the two-edged sword to make war. I think there's a sobering picture there of the urgency by which we must recognize our sin, repent of our sin, and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. That reminder of the sword of his mouth is a reminder to us today that when we stand before God in judgment, we will not be judged on the basis of what we felt, what was popular, what the culture said, or what anybody else around us said, but on the basis of how we lived our life according to the word of God. It's a sobering statement. Repent or I'm coming quickly. Finally, I want you to see the reward of Jesus, and we'll close. Jesus then looks to those who would repent, those who would hear his words and respond and surrender and obedience. And here's what he says in verse 17. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Jesus promised a reward to those who would repent. In fact, he promised two rewards. He promised a white stone with a new name written on it that the only ones that would know what it means would be you and the Lord. 
Scholars today still debate about what he meant by that white stone. It's one of the mysteries that we will not know this side of heaven and we'll only have it answered when we stand before the Lord. I guarantee if you read 100 commentaries this week, you'll probably get about 85 different answers on what they think it means. But we don't have to guess about the other reward. Jesus says to he who repents, I will give you some of the hidden manna. What did he mean by that? Look with me at John chapter six, verse 47 through 51, and here's how we'll close the message. Listen to what Jesus himself said in John chapter six. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Listen to this. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Listen to this statement. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Back in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, they were hungry and in need of food and need of nourishment. And every single day, God provided them with manna. The Bible says that it appeared as dew on the earth and they would take it and bring it together. And out of that, they were able to have like a wafer like of bread to eat. It provided for them temporarily, daily, as they would gather that manna together. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, listen, that manna was temporary, but I came as the bread of life. That he who believes in me he who receives me will have eternal life. In Pergamum, there were a lot of people living to be the top man on the totem pole, the, the rich, the educated, the scholar. There, there were a lot of people living to, to worship Caesar and to bow to other gods. At Pergamum, there were a lot of people that were living their life for their own pleasures. And they were saying, listen, you do all these things and you're gonna have a life that's fulfilling and a life that's enriched and life's gonna be grand. But Jesus knew the key to eternal and abundant life is not found in pleasure. It's not found in education. It's not found in knowledge and expertise, no. The key to eternal and abundant life is found by receiving the bread of life. And who is that? It's Jesus Christ. I'll close with this illustration as Pastor Scott comes and plays. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity to speak with one of our partners, our ministry partners in Ukraine. And this specific ministry partner and his family had to, had to leave their home and their area and frankly, they left in such, I mean, they left so quickly that they literally left everything behind. You know, there's been news reports of people just gathering the most precious belongings. This pastor and his family gathered as many close people as they could and got 13 people in their vehicle. There was no room for wedding photos and children's mementos and valuable possessions. They literally brought themselves and some of their people. So we spoke over the phone in his broken English. Here's what he said to me. And it was, it was incredibly convicting. He said, Pastor, God is our refuge. Our hope is in him. And I asked him, well, were you able to bring anything with you? Was there I mean, anything at all? What are your needs? And he said, oh, pastor. <laughs> I'll never forget this statement. We are still rich. We are still rich. I found myself sitting there thinking, who in the world would lose everything and say, with a laugh, we're still rich. I found myself convicted because I found myself questioning. Would I say that? You know why that brother said, we're still rich? 
because in a place where he's lost everything that the world says is of value, he has the one person and the one thing that this world cannot offer. He has Jesus Christ. And even in this moment where he doesn't know what he's gonna eat today for lunch or for dinner or what tomorrow holds, here's what he knows. He knows that Jesus gives hidden manna to those who walk by faith and trust him. And he's finding that Jesus is enough. Over the past week and a half, I have been so burdened and grieved for our brothers and sisters, really in Russia and Ukraine, but especially in Ukraine. But I had to confess that the more I prepared this message and the more God dealt with me, I found myself actually more burdened and grieved for us. Christians in America. Because I think for many of us, somewhere along the way, we started to believe and maybe even live like Jesus wasn't enough. Is there a compromise in your life? Is there an area that the Holy Spirit of God is convicting you today? Is there something to confess and turn from? Jesus gives a word of compassion and invitation when he says repent. But he also gives a sobering warning when he says, or else, I'm coming quickly. If there's something you need to repent of today, don't waste your opportunity. Don't miss the moment. Let's pray. Father, have your way in our lives today. Lord, we have been so greatly blessed. And it's so easy at times in our blessing to focus on the blessing and lose sight of you, the one who has blessed us. It's easy sometimes to even hear the lies of the enemy that the reason for our blessing is because of us. Our knowledge, our skills, or whatever else. It's easy in this wealthy nation to think that our lives are to be lived for our pleasure. What we want. Lord, you remind us through the Church of Pergamum I feel like you're reminding me through some of our brothers and sisters right now in Ukraine that you not only save us, but as we have relationship with you and fellowship with you, you fill us and you bring fulfillment to our life, meaning and purpose. So much so that even if everything in the world is stripped away, we still find our joy in you. Help us to see where the enemies tried to rob us. Help us to see the lies that we believe, the compromises that we've made so that we might repent of it right now and leave here today in renewed fellowship with you, I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any questions about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.